Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast celebrating Jewish food, culture, and history. I'm your host, Beth Schenker. I get really passionate about food. I love reading about it, talking to people about it, watching films about it. I, th- I think you get what I'm getting at. So when I received an email from my friend Gabby Spat, who is the executive director of the Blue Dove Foundation in March, asking me if I heard anything about some event called Great Big Jewish Food Fest, and it was coming up soon, um, you can imagine that I got really excited about this. And so I thought, you know, anything to get my mind off the pandemic and that it has to do with Jewish food, I mean, that it couldn't be any better. So I started to investigate a little bit about this event. I found out it was a first-time thing. It had never existed before. It was going to be held online. There would be educational sessions, cooking sessions, panel discussions. And then the guests that were presenting were, it was just an amazing array of people, some um, very familiar to, to a lot of you out there who are listening to this podcast. So it seemed like this event just dropped out of nowhere into my isolated pandemic life, and I thought, my God, this is just a gift. So, as you can tell, I could go on way too long about this event, but you don't want to hear me talk about it, and that's why I've invited my guest, Lisa Colton, the executive producer of the Great Big Jewish Food Fest, to join me as my guest today. Now, you'll be able to hear the whole story, and if you missed it, you can still connect to some of the very rich content that's still available. Let me tell you a little bit about Lisa's other life. She is the founder and president of Dareem Online and Dareem Consulting, helping nonprofits, many of which are part of the larger Jewish community, thrive in today's connected age. She assists with strategic planning and business models, organizational culture, community building, communications, and much more. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the Big Schmear. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I can't believe that I really now have you all to myself. I get to bombard you with tons of questions about the festival. I'm joking mostly. So (laughs) let's start by having you tell my listeners how and where the idea to have a multi-day online conference came from. Well, I live in Seattle, Washington. We were the kind of epicenter of this whole epidemic early on. And I was watching my friends who own restaurants and other food businesses kind of project into the future, and it didn't look good. And as things started to shut down here in Seattle, my entrepreneurial brain went into creative problem-solving mode. My daughter's bat mitzvah was also supposed to be at the beginning of March, and that got indefinitely postponed. And so I saw this, this wave of sadness and constriction starting to happen, and where my mind goes is creative problem solving. So as I thought about that and thought about it in the Jewish community, I saw multiple aspects of our greater Jewish communal system that were going to be affected from chefs and restaurants and caterers, as well as the people who might have been hiring all of those people to have parties or cater their bar mitzvahs or weddings this summer. And then I saw people stuck at home, many of whom were cooking more than they ever had before and looking for new opportunities for education and entertainment and connection and community. 
And then I saw Jewish organizations, let's just say JCCs, for example, that are in the business of creating these kind of arts and culture and community building events that couldn't happen in person, and they were struggling to figure out how to pivot to do things online. So if you take all those things and you kind of map them out, what's the intersection of that Venn diagram? That's where my brain went. And I had this idea for a virtual Jewish food festival that wasn't a pivot out of anything else or trying to put an in-person event online. It was really born of the moment. And I think the fact that it was native to that moment had a lot to do with the culture and community and festival that we were able to build. Wow. Well, first, let me say, if I ever need to problem solve, you are the person I'm calling <laughs> first because, oh, my I God, <laughs> that, that's, that's amazing the way your brain works. So as we mentioned a little while ago, your day job or your other life, you do connect with the Jewish community and Jewish organizations, but... I'm trying to figure out, like, where did you get the next bridge from that to food people? Were you involved in food, the food business in some way that, or tell me about that piece. That's a great question. Well, I often say that if I make, like, a midlife pivot out of the work that I do now, it would probably be into the food space. I love food. I love cooking. I take cooking classes all the time. My 13-year-old daughter is an aspiring chef. Hmm. She's actually been teaching cooking classes for kids online this summer. Ah, that's um, and great. So that's a very natural space for me, but it isn't my professional space. So my first call when I had this idea was to Jeffrey Yoskowitz, who's one of the, the founders of the Gefilteria and uh, wrote the Gefilte Manifesto with Liz Alpern, who was also part of our festival. And he's somebody that I've long admired for kind of the multitude of ways that he weaves together food, recipes, history, identity, creativity. He just is very multidimensional, um, and I've really enjoyed learning with him in the past. So I call him just to, like, run this idea past him, like, am I totally crazy? <laughs> and he was super excited about it and said, actually, I just spoke to somebody at a foundation recently who's also interested in supporting the Jewish food space wow. in this moment of the pandemic, you two should talk. And, um, and that led to a very quick turnaround grant from the Maimonides Fund that helped make it possible. Um, we ended up also getting funding from the Singer Foundation and the Charles Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation. And uh, I hired Jeffrey to be my co-executive producer and to run really the program side of things while I was doing more of like the operations side of things mm -hmm. and his relationships in the Jewish food space. And I would say the entrepreneurial food community in general um, were absolutely paramount to making this thing come to life with the sophistication and the level of excellence that it did. Well, you clearly had a great partner and many of my listeners are familiar with Jeffrey and Liz and the Gefilteria, and they're just such great people and and love Jewish food. I mean, there's no, you, you can't take the love out of the food prep for them. And so um, th I think that also speaks well to what kinds of content people found during this conference. 
Um, so tell me yeah, a little. It very much became part of the DNA of the festival, right? The, yeah. the the ethos and the love that you feel from Jeffrey and Liz became part of not just teaching people new skills or recipes, but this very three or even four dimensional gigantic group hug that felt <laughs> both global in scope during the festival and also reaching way back in time and actually looking forward in time too. And we had lots of kids that participated in the festival in a variety of ways and this transmission not only of recipes but all of the meaning that's in those recipes and seeing food as this real kind of conduit and connector yeah. for identity. It's multi-generational Jewish life. So I know you and Jeffrey are great, but you probably couldn't have done this just the two of you. Were there other people <laughs> on your team? Oh, my gosh. It was a <laughs> uh, rapidly growing team. First of all, it was eight weeks from, like, that initial concept to actually throwing the 10-day festival. It That's was nuts. That is nuts. <laughs> it was nuts. It was such a sprint. And we had to have all the right people doing all the right things and being as efficient as possible, for sure. So we, we did build a team, and the team grew over time as the level of sophistication and then the numbers of people participating just continued to grow, which was a wonderful problem to have. Um, in, a different, in addition to Jeffrey and Liz, who he recruited also to be on that program and, and production team, Deborah First, who's a food writer, was also a part of developing the program. Sarah K. Lacks, who works for the JCC in Manhattan, was a Jewish educator that brought kind of this other dimension of, of the Jewish part to food. We had a whole technical production team that was led by Jesse Lauder, um, who works at Central Synagogue and does all of their technology and streaming. He's also a a music producer and does a lot of documentary film as well and was um, a friend of mine before the festival and just the perfect person to have in that role. Um, and he recruited a few other technical producers uh, and some other hands-on producers that helped with each individual event, dealing with the technology and making sure sound and internet connections were good and that lighting was good for our presenters and all of that. Dalit Shalom, um, who works for the New York Times as a graphic designer, uh, developed our graphic identity, and that really played out in a lot of ways from our logo to kind of the, the slides that people would see as they arrived at an event before it actually kicked off and got started. And then we had a whole communications team that um, was doing all of the, the content, the emails, all of the social media, which was partially about marketing, but it was a lot about creating that culture of a communal festival and making you feel like you were part of something bigger, not just attending something on Zoom. And that team really also extended the social media presence into a number of live engagements. So in addition to kind of the formal festival schedule, there were Instagram lives that were like, you know, 30-minute conversations with or tutorials on how to make certain things, um, and Instagram story takeovers. We ended up with over 8,000 people following our Instagram account in a matter of three or four weeks because the content there was so rich. Yeah. So I think even if some people listening are familiar with what happened and participated in this event, 
everybody has a sense now of all those pieces that had to come together in order to be able to see it on your screen, whether it's your phone screen, your iPad, whatever it is. I'm wondering, um, just to take a step back, what were the goals of the conference? Sure. I would answer this question totally differently if you talk to me, like, you know, at the beginning of April versus now, (laughs) because it evolved so much. Originally, I think our goal was to help people find meaning, connection, activities, learning, reflection while they're at home in quarantine in a very unusual time and to do that as a big communal endeavor. The Great Big Jewish Food Fest is not owned by or produced by any one organization. It really was an experience by and for people who love Jewish food. And in many ways, I think that's kind of a radical idea in the Jewish community where we find our our identity and our relationships and our participation often orbit around an organization that we're affiliated with, whether you're a member of a synagogue or a member of a JCC or you send Mm -hmm. your kids to a day school or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that in and of itself was kind of radical and also very obvious and a very natural place for me and and is a little bit kind of the the ethos of my, my community organizing. And so we wanted people to be active participants and to create a platform where people who love Jewish food and have expertise in it writ large, whether you are a cookbook collector or a James Beard celebrated chef or anywhere in between, to bring, to to, to play on that platform, to offer what they had. And one of the things I loved most about the festival was a sense of intimacy, Mm -hmm. that you could be in Michael Solomonoff's kitchen and like, you know, see his refrigerator and his stove. It's not a formal atmosphere. It's a very casual communal atmosphere and we're all in this together. Last but not least, we're going to head to Chef Michael Solomonoff. And we're going to make his famous hummus together. Here we go. Let's get Mike. What's up? Look at you. You brushed your hair and changed your shirt for us. I'm so honored. It's Shabbat, isn't it? It sure is Shabbat. Shabbat shalom to you, Mike. Shalom. I thought um, on the Shabbat I would wear not sweatpants and put a shirt on. You know? know, I am the most dressed up I have been in weeks for you. It's all for you guys. I put on a real shirt. I even put on lipstick. I mean, it's like a big day. It's Shabbat after all. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Um, We're going to just make something really, really simple. We're going to make our five-minute version of hummus, which requires canned chickpeas, which I know most people think is like a derogatory way to make hummus. I think... Tell me about that, actually, because it's a big debate. Um, and you are um, the king of hummus, if I may say, in the best way. Thank goodness for you, because you are, you know, the one we turn to for our hummus-making uh, needs. So I think that's a lot of issue for people. If you're making hummus for the first time and um, you don't have dried chickpeas, will you be struck down um, and forever, in, you know, unappreciated in life? Like, 
You will not go to like- Some people don't have time, don't have access and chickpeas and, and canned beans are something we have a lot of right now. Well, so here's the thing. One, like the way that we cook them at Tahab, we soak the chickpeas with baking soda overnight, 24 hours actually, and then we rinse them and then we boil them for hours and hours and then we drain them and get all the water out, right? Which is awesome if you have like three days and space to do it, right? So we've got that version that's available online. That's easy. But like realistically, now that I've got kids, now that we've got, you know, um, now that we're actually on lockdown as well, you actually have access to beans, to, to canned beans that are actually even sometimes better quality than dried, right? So you can go to like your store and get, I use like regular swaggy canned garbanzo beans, right? Right. And they're not bad. Um, so that was really the, the, the idea coming out of it from the beginning. And to give people who are professionals in the Jewish food space a new avenue, an opportunity, an audience to build their brand or share their cookbooks or their restaurants and to, to do something well. In many ways, we were shut down, right? If your book tour was canceled or your trip through Poland to do a food tour was canceled or your restaurants closed. It really just built from there. First of all, I'll say that Jeffrey and Liz and Devra took the opportunity of putting together a program and ran with it in such rich and deep and creative and meaningful ways that it, it gave us many more opportunities to evolve our goals over time. So for example, Mitchell from the James Beard Foundation was going to do a session on restaurants during COVID and how kind of talking about the food industry, Jewish in particular, but also larger. And he said to us, you know, I would really love to invite people to make a donation. We have a campaign going to support small food businesses and restaurants in this time. And just to invite people to, say, give an $18 contribution towards that campaign. If they're interested, would that be okay with you? And we were like, of course. It was a new idea, really. We had mm. seen this. We wanted to remove cost as a barrier to participation and therefore sought grant funding to support the fest as opposed to charging a ticket price. But Mitchell's idea about actually once the audience is there for free with access to all of this amazing content and experience, why not just invite them to do something generous and to build in the Jewish values of tzedakah into this particular moment and I'm so glad that we did because at the moment at the time that he was asking that question we were thinking in the hundreds or maybe thousands of participants and we ended up with over 20,000 people participating in the festival maybe more because <laughs> it's hard to measure exactly what was happening on social media as well with you know Facebook sure. watch parties or whatever but it ended up becoming actually a much more front and center goal of the festival over time as we saw the enthusiasm and that it added meaning to people's participation. And it also helped us feel like a community with a goal. And that as we set aspirational goals for that fundraising, um, people really felt like they were part of something bigger than themselves. And that was powerful and important, especially at a really difficult time 
when society was so shut down. So it wasn't out of the gates one of our explicit goals, but by the end it became a very important part of of the identity of the festival, and we ended up raising over $150,000. Jeez. I thought it was brilliant, actually. And the way it was handled was so tasteful and, as you said, just brought the community together, really. And you talked about, just sort of in passing, how many people you had in the end sign up as far as you could tell, but how long did it take for you all to realize that this idea wasn't just like a good thing and popular, but was taking off, like probably beyond your wildest dreams? Uh, That's a great question. It happened pretty quickly. And I think that's for a few reasons. First of all, I think the caliber of presenters that we had spoke for itself. And when people saw names that they recognized and people whose cookbooks were on their shelves, it added a level of excellence and seriousness that really earned people's attention. But I don't think that alone really is why it was so successful. I think there's two important parts. One, we took a posture from the very beginning of a very generous sense of collaboration with community partners. And this goes back to really that first idea for the festival where I understood that organizations like JCCs and synagogues and museums were in a really hard place. It's hard to pivot what you do normally in person to online, Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily all that satisfying because it feels like a compromise or a loss. So I knew that if we could say to every JCC in North America, hey, take this food fest, own it, be a partner in it, help us make it happen, and offer it to your people, you don't have to recreate your culinary arts and culture program Let's do it together. That was going to be exciting and valuable for the staff and leaders of the JCC, as well as all of their people to feel part of something positive and creative and cutting edge and exciting. So that kind of very generous, collaborative posture was explicit and a goal right from the beginning. It allowed a lot of partners to be able to say yes really easily and allowed us a great distribution network for the ideas, as well as partners who were co-producing events with us. And we had this whole other layer of community-produced events in addition to the festival-produced sessions as well. So that that kind of like amplified things right from the get-go. And it, it was this sense of not being territorial and not needing to own it it was really by and for people who love Jewish food, and that applies to all of these other kinds of organizations, too. So whether it was the JCCA that was helping all the JCCs in their network use it, or PJ Library that was sending it out to all their community organizers in cities all over the country and really North America to get out to parents and kids, the Jewish Grandparents Network that invited grandparents to participate. And in fact, we had many people that had a grandparent in one city and a grandchild in another city that would come to the same session at the same time. So for example, we had grandparents who live in one city making a holler with their grandkids who live in a different city. And they would 
open their laptop, for example, on the kitchen counter, and Shannon Sarna is teaching challah baking, and they're both doing it at the same time with a second screen, like an iPad or their phone, FaceTiming one another, mm. so that the grandparent and the grandchild were having a conversation while doing the same activity in the same festival session. Wow. And it was such a creative way to make meaning and build connection at a time where we can't be together and you can't go on family vacation together and you can't go visit your grandkids, but you could actually do this together. So it became this kind of connective tissue to pull those people together. And that creative, generous posture towards partners helped them then share it with all of their networks in these creative ways that was a win-win-win-win for everybody. So that was one way that I think we reached a scale through those partnerships. And the other was through really through social sharing. We had so many people who shared it, you know, like you learned about it from a friend, whether it was a direct email or through social media. And that social sharing was a really easy thing to say, I'm so excited about this particular event. Do you want to come with me or check out everything else that's going on? We ended up getting a decent amount of press for it as well. There was a blurb in the New York Times at home section and the Sunday paper, Eater, Food and Wine. But those things really came much later once we had this critical mass and and a ton of momentum. And that critical mass was really built in a very organic way, which I love. I just ditto everything you said from, from the viewer's point of view. That was the sense that you had of participating. It was just, it was fantastic. So I'm not going to ask you what your favorite sessions were or your favorite presenters, but I do want to know, were there certain topics or sessions that you, and I don't mean just you, Lisa, but your team, felt that it was critical to have this topic or this presenter or these kinds of presenters be part of this conference, and then by doing that, you would feel like, yes, we've really done this correct. We've done this right. We consider this a success. Mm, That's a great question. I think that the live cooking sessions with well-known chefs were obvious in some way, right? Those Mm -hmm. were a given that they would be part of it. It was a question of how to package it in a way that was optimal. But Really, I think the ones that stand out for me are the ones that were a little bit more specific or nuanced or niche in some way that maybe wouldn't have been hugely popular, but were incredibly meaningful to the people who came. So, for example, there was a session with two academics, Dr. Rachel B. Gross and Dr. Jordan Rosenblum, who talked about what Jewish food means and their academic study of it. And there's so much embedded in there. And Rachel talked about a renaissance of Jewish food. And she actually used the term a revival because it has these other kind of, I don't know, religious connotations that that Jewish food really is having a moment right now for lots of different reasons, but partially because it's accessible and meaningful and this it's a language between generations to some degree. 
And there was another session related to that, which was about some research that recently came out about Jewish millennials. And one of the themes in that pretty extensive research was the importance of food, of gathering around a table, of relationships that are developed at that table, and that food is really an identity builder and an access point that then leads to so many other things. So I, I, I thought that kind of slightly more academic approach, at least for me, was very interesting and for those people who came. And then there were others that were much more niche in terms of identity. So there was a talk about Soviet Jewish cuisine. And when Jeffrey and Liz and Deborah first proposed that as part of the slate of sessions, I was like, well, that's incredibly niche. Like, how many people are going to come to a talk about Soviet Jewish cuisine? So without further ado, um, Bonnie and Boris, what are you eating? Hi, Kathy. Hi. You want me to go first? Is that what you were saying? I'm going to defer to the professional chef. Oh, no, no pressure. Uh, (laughs) Just so the the viewers know, I invited Bonnie and Boris to a little virtual Zoom Zakuski feast. And yeah, Bonnie's going to tell us first what she's eating tonight. No pressure. I mean, um, I try to stick with the mentality of a, of a, a good Soviet um, with keeping with what you happen to have on hand. Um, and, uh, you know, people would come to your doorstep unannounced. So that was really important is just be able to pull whatever you could out. So this is not fancy. So, you know, I'm just, you know, I feel like the pressure is high. Um, but I have some beet salad that is actually left over from yesterday's dinner, which is mm-hmm. delicious. Um, some uh, barrel style uh, Persian cucumbers, a little salat mimosa that I made from some uh, salmon that we uh, had in our uh, crisper drawer, um, some jarred ivar, which is a type of a pepper, um, a, a pepper um, condiment or sa- like spread, um, some sprote with pumpernickel toast and some hard-boiled egg. Um, I also did a similar thing with some cod liver um, that we had in our um, pantry, which is uh, particularly high profile during Soviet times, sometimes could be used as currency. Um, I also have some little mushroom-flavored rusks that I found. There's some more cod liver back there in case you want to know what that looked like. And then the most simple zakuska of all that my father would be embarrassed, he would disown me if I didn't have this on my table, is a scallion with some salt. Because that is something that's always available. You run out to the garden or to the store and you always have scallions um, and obviously always have salt. And that is the best, to him, the best chaser. So, And in fact, it was incredibly resonant. And I got more text messages from friends during that session telling me that they're watching with their mother or their grandmother or their kids or that tears were rolling down their cheeks and they didn't realize anybody else had had that same experience. That in for for those families that were in the Soviet Union trying to preserve their Jewish identity and pass it on, how critical Jewish food was and that those recipes that they hung on, a lot packed into that, a lot of emotion, a lot of identity, a lot of struggle. And so seeing how that food and those traditions and that community remains very much alive and an incredible part of Jewish history, really, living on through those recipes, really was was so 
moving to me that it could help those people find one another and have that shared experience, even if it's a very specific audience that it resonates for. I actually attended that session among many others, and I loved that. It was, I just thought it was great, as I enjoyed all the, all the sessions that I, I attended. So tell me, what, what about the conference brought the most joy to you and your team, looking back? Oh, wow. I have a whole folder of emails <laughs> from people that, um, you know, I, I'm, I save for, uh, for my down days to go and read them because they're so joyful. Really, like, those weeks were hard weeks. You know, the whole country was deep in the thick of shutdown, personal, social, health, Business, everything, everything, yeah. And um, it really was like this ray of sunshine, not only watching our hard work come to life, but more importantly, watching the, the delight and the joy and the energy and enthusiasm that we saw in the participants. I think the active participation, the robust conversation and reflection and memories and synergies that were happening in the chat, whether it was on Zoom or on Facebook, people connecting with one another, you know, on Facebook, when you're watching something and, and one of your friends joins, it shows you in the stream of comments that, you know, your friend Beth has just joined. Yep. And then they end up talking to one another. So it felt like there was a a familial, communal friendship. There was this whole other social dynamic that was both very personal to people when you were there with your grandchild or with your friend or with your college roommate at the same time, but also feeling part of a really true community. And um, I think sometimes we, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine that in the Jewish community, we use that term community to mean everyone from like your closest Jewish friends that you have Shabbat dinner with regularly to every Jew who has ever lived throughout time and space. We have like no nuance for the <laughs> word. Right. And oftentimes we talk about community as like, these are the 600 other people also sitting in the pews in the same room as me at the same time. Not necessarily as people I trust or share an enthusiasm for something with. And I think the part that delighted our team the most was how much it really felt like a community. Even though we came together for 10 days together, it really felt like a very unique and special community, not just a series of events. And that's the magic that, you know, you can hope for and you can try to design for, but you never know if it's going to happen, and I think it happened exponentially more than we even imagined it could have, and, and that was really satisfying. So as a person who attended, I think I attended like 20, around 20 sessions. Um, wow. I can, yeah, I was, I was in there with you. And so I would just like ditto everything you said, but from my perspective, what was amazing to me was seeing, you know, the, the commentary during live sessions. And so I'd recognize people's names, not that I knew them personally, but just, oh, I have her cookbook, or, oh, I remember reading an article about her, or I read 
a book she wrote. And people making comments to each other as friends, even though we weren't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sense of community was just great. I think it really, I think it really helped people get through, as you said, like it was some of the most difficult times, particularly if you, I mean, if you were in the, anywhere where it's cold, then (laughs) feeling isolated and looking out at gray skies and awful weather where you couldn't even step outside your own space, your physical, you know, your house or your apartment, um, it made that isolation even, even more uh, difficult, I think. So having this sunshine in your house, sharing all these great things about food and as you even alluded to, were fantastic. So, so my next question is, even though I know it was exhausting and crazy, do you think you might do this again? Oh, gosh. It's, <laughs> it's the question, isn't it? You know, I just want to back up for a second, Beth, and comment on something that you just said about seeing people in these sessions whose names you recognized, you know, from their books or, or anything else. And one thing I didn't mention yet is how much the professional Jewish food community appreciated an opportunity to come together as a field. Mm, That it doesn't happen. They all have relationships with one another, but it's very rare to come together as a community in some way. This was not at all intended to be a professional conference, let's say. But in some sense, it was like the hallway at <laughs> Jewish Food Professional Conference where all those people could bump into each other and just feel part of something larger. And some of the sessions, the deli one, I'll just call out as an example, really kind of served that function, right? The session was David Sachs, who wrote the book on the Jewish deli, bopping around from city to city, interviewing and talking with owners of Jewish delis. In some ways, some people are calling that this moment, the past 10 years, a, a moment of Delhi revival. And at the same time, we're also seeing this other trend, some Delhi's closing. What, what are you seeing? What is the state of the Delhi uh, before this current moment? And what was the state of the Delhi at the start of 2020 from your vantage point? I mean, I think, you know, we reached a state in the past couple of years of the past decade where it wasn't this tremendous decline that we saw in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s, where you went from thousands of delis down to just a few hundred. Um, businesses will always open and businesses will always close. And a lot of that happens for regular reasons. An owner retires or they get sick. Um, the neighborhood changes. Rents go up and they don't own the building. Or you know, in the case of Toronto, of a few delis I know, they own the building and they sell it out to a developer. Um, all Jewish fairy tales and in real estate. And, uh, and, and, you know, other reasons that were sort of beyond that. But for every deli that I heard closing, I would get an email from someone or hear a message and saying, hey, I'm in Portland, Maine. I'm, I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'm, I'm in Berlin. And, you know, I, I'm opening this deli or I'm thinking about opening a deli. Um, that desire, that hunger for the food and the culture is still there. And I think that's something that really awoke in the past 15 to 20 years. And that kind of experience couldn't happen in normal times. It Mm -hmm. could only happen 
when you do something in a virtual environment, right? So we were able to do things that really were incredibly unique to the moment. And after that session, we had some happy hours that were really for very specific audiences. And, And one of those were for owners of Jewish delis. And those people came together to have a brief happy hour together online, but had never gathered as a group before, even though maybe they had talked to each other on the phone or they had bumped into each other here or there over the years, but had never come together as a group. So those were also special moments that um, were, were incredibly unique. And those kinds of things I hope really will continue. I'm, I'm much more interested in, building the field of Jewish food, not just for the sake of consuming it (laughs) or tasting it or cooking it, but understanding it as a very important, rich, and powerful aspect of Jewish identity and learning and culture. Because when you take the time to really think and reflect and be intentional about it, it carries so much meaning beyond, you know, the instructions of a recipe or saying this is like a typical thing Jews make on a particular holiday. I think there's a huge amount of potential to use food in the fabric of Jewish life and identity in new ways. You know, the the food festival was really born of the moment. So we didn't start it with the idea of doing it Again, it really was just this pop-up, and that's that. So I don't have a good answer for you. (laughs) But what we do know is that there are a lot of people who were really energized about it. There's a lot of people asking us that question. And, you know, we'll see how the world evolves and what might come in the future. Well, that's that's the most honest answer I could expect, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's not the one I wanted, but it is the one that is perfect. So if there are listeners out there who are just now hearing about the Great Big Jewish Food Fest for the first time, or for even some of those people who attended a couple of sessions, but for whatever reasons didn't get to attend everything, because there was lots, I know there's content still out there. So how can people find that? Sure. So um, the website is jewishfoodfest.org. And on that site are all the archives. So you can go replay many, many sessions from the Food Fest. There's also what we called Anytime content, which during the, during the festival was available to just kind of sample at any time. It wasn't broadcast or a live thing at any particular time. But now all of that's available to browse as well. So by all means, go. And on your own time, you can uh, listen and watch any of that. You can also find it on Facebook. Uh, there's a Facebook page, Great Big Jewish Food Fest, and Instagram account, Great Big Jewish Food Fest as well. And on Facebook, there's also a number of those sessions that are archived as videos and conversations you can participate in. On Instagram, a number of those Instagram live sessions are also captured. So right at the top, you can um, see those and replay any of those that you would like as well. And on the website, you can also drop your email. So if and when we do future gatherings, pop-ups, festivals, drop your email in there, and then you'll be sure to know what we might be up to in the future. Lisa, I want to thank you so much for taking time to talk to me about this 
really important and great event. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you. I know my name's, my email's got to be in that list. So, um, (laughs) so, because I want to hear about what's happening next. So I really want to thank you so much for having me. It was really a delight to have this conversation and to get to know you over the last few weeks and months. Thanks for being uh, such an enthusiastic food festivarian. Oh, whoa. Well, thank you. I love that. My recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, please don't forget to subscribe to my podcast, follow my Instagram account at Beth the Jewish Foodie, and write a review or share a like on my Facebook group page. And please do tell your friends to listen. It's the best way for my podcast to continue to grow. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating.